Now, we're going to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's a text that I've known for a long time. Uh, I didn't exactly understand it when I first memorized it as a boy when I was seven or eight years old at the insistence of my father. But it really is the story of us. So as you will see when we read the text, it's about you. It starts out as for you. I want you to take it personally. I want you to hear it personally. I want you to understand it as the story told about you from the inspired Word of God and the pen of the Apostle Paul, the story of us. And I'm starting to read in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the letter to the Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the wages, the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I hope that you will hide these ten verses in your heart. I've asked you to make an effort memorizing. Some of you have done very well memorizing these ten verses through the summer weeks and hiding it in your heart. It's printed on the back of our devotional guide for the summer. If you didn't get a devotional guide, we have a printed guide which is at the welcome desk and you can pick it up and on the back this text is printed. It would be great to commit to memory, to work into the DNA of your mind and heart because it really is the story of us. As for you, the apostle writes, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, in the King James Version, it started out with, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And I did not know what the word quickened mean when I w meant when I was a boy and memorized this text. I knew what quick was. That was moving swiftly. But I didn't know what quickened was about till years later. But the word is used again later on in the passage, and it means to be made alive. 
And the scripture says that God raised us up in this passage with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. So grace raises us up. And that's what he's talking about. From the dead, we are raised up, we are quickened, we are made alive through the power of God. This is the story of you who know Jesus. You were made alive one day through the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead and raised you also from the dead. This happened by God's grace that you were quickened. Now, it starts out here saying you were dead in your transgressions and sins. As a boy, I understood what dead meant more so than quickened. Because I had seen the death of pets and other animals, even as a boy, and I knew that decay was associated with death. My grandsons were entranced and fascinated by a dead animal that we found on the farm. And when we got back, they were telling their mother about our trip, and all they could talk about was this dead animal that we found. Well, death dawns on us, and our understanding of death grows as we're children, and we experience death in different ways, usually through pets and other uh, animals maybe that we see that have died. And when Paul uses the word dead here to describe us, he really intends for us to embrace this, to understand that we were dead in transgressions and sins. Now, something dead cannot respond. It's impossible for a dead thing to respond. You may tell it to get up. You may wish it to get up. But it cannot because it is dead. And this is the kind of immobility and paralysis, impotence and, and powerlessness that was ours in our dead state. We were dead spiritually, the Bible says. Paul writes that we were dead in the way we used to live, in the story of us. Before we met Jesus, we were dead in transgressions and sins. Now, this passage doesn't make a lot of sense to somebody who hasn't anchored himself in Jesus. Until you are a Jesus person and have received the grace of God offered through Christ and his salvation, the idea of being dead doesn't really seem to make sense. But as Paul writes to these Christians in the church at Ephesus, he is telling this story of us. And he is saying that we were dead in the way we used to live. Before you met Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in that old life. Now that may seem strange to you. The apostle Paul even would call his very religious life before meeting Jesus, death in transgressions and sins. But even the Apostle Paul talked about how we inherited an empty way of life from our forefathers. He was describing that former way of life in terms of it being empty, fruitless, unproductive, dead. You were dead in transgressions and sins. It's hard to think about. But you know it's a theme through the Scripture, not just here, but all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If you will remember, 
God said to Adam and Eve in their state of innocence and perfection, without any sin, he said to them, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of that fruit in that day, you will die. Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, but they didn't immediately die. And so we asked the question, well, God said in the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. So what did that mean? And here's what it meant. For Adam and Eve, they enjoyed a relationship with God that was truly amazing. The scripture says that God walked and talked with them in the cool of the garden. That God had this wonderful relationship with Adam and Eve. But that after they ate of the fruit and disobeyed God, when God came looking for them for that walk in the cool of the evening, Adam and Eve ran and hid. They did not want to see God. They did not want to hear God. They felt separated and alienated from God. And indeed, they were. They bought a lie. They bought the lie of the serpent in the garden who whispered to them and said, Has God really said that this fruit will bring death? That's ridiculous. You shall not surely die. No, you're going to be like gods, knowing good and evil. And Adam and Eve listened to this tempter, this one who questioned God's word to them. And they looked at the fruit and said, Well, it looks good to eat, and it's pleasant to the eye. Hey, and it's desirable to make one wise. And so Eve ate of the fruit, the scripture says, and gave to Adam, and he ate too. And so do we all. We all. We have this nature. It's not just an accident. It's not just a moment. It's not just an incident in our moral and spiritual life. The scripture describes us here as by nature the children of wrath. That is the wrath of God. We are by nature the children of wrath. I would alert you to a pre-existing spiritual condition about you. And it will be evidenced by your clear refusal to hear God's word and obey. You have a pre-existing nature that is bent towards sin. And it's the reason when temptation comes your way, even though you know it hurts you, even though you know it hurts others and people that you love, even though you understand that it's self-destructive and maybe destructive of the relationships you say are most important in your life, when the tempter comes along and he whispers this to you, I'm telling you, you have a nature that gives in to the tempter's request and his notion that this is not going to kill me. It's not really destroyed me. No, it's other things. I'm going to be wiser. I'm going to be smarter. I'm going to know the world better. I'm going to know people better if I go ahead and eat this fruit. 
And so all of us, by nature, bent toward this rebellion against God, take of the fruit and eat and sin. And the Bible says, like Adam and Eve, we die and we are dead in our transgressions and our sin. It is the story of each of us and all of us. The Bible says, as for you, there was a time when you walked this way. It was your behavior. It was how you behaved. You were surrendering to the indulgences that you wanted to. When the tempter called out to you, you went that way. You did what you knew you shouldn't. You followed the course of this world, the apostle says here. That's, that's the world. It was the world of his day, and it's the world of our day, too. The world doesn't teach us that there's death in this self-assertion, in this desire to be in control, in the insistence that, no, I want to be the God in my life. I want to be in charge in my life. I'm the one who will decide about these things. Not you, not my parents, not the preacher, not the Word of God, not God himself. I'm going to do what I want to do. And in the midst of insisting that we will do what we want to do and we have the right to do what we want to do, we experience spiritual death, separation from the God who made us and loves us. God made you amazingly. You are wonderfully made. And when God made you, he made you capable of a free response of love to him. He is love, and he loves you freely, not because he must, but because he will. He chooses to love you. He made you in his image, and he gave you this capacity to love and you can love him back freely. Or you can choose not to love. You can choose to refuse his love. You can choose to back out of a relationship with the creator God who made you. And who wants to be in relationship with you. You can do that. And when you do, you die. You cut yourself off from the source of life. You are dead in transgressions and sins. And not only Adam and Eve, but every individual on the planet hears the whisper of the devil, who is the personal force of evil in the world and goes about seeking how he may devour you. He is personally interested in your destruction as he was with Adam and Eve. And so you have an enemy that is aggressive and initiates contact with you. And the enemy says the same thing to you that he said to Adam and Eve. Has God really said this? Forget about that. You will not die. This is going to be life actualization for you to go your own way and do your own thing. And so we end up separated from God, beat up by our own indiscretions, failures, 
and sin and spiritually dead, like the scripture says here. Verse 4 is a famous verse in this passage. In the King James Version, it starts out with, but God. The scripture describes here our terrible condition, that we are dead in transgressions and sins, that we have followed our own desires, that we are separated from God, that we have gone our own way, and we cannot save ourselves. And in this condition of death and spiritual separation from God, there comes this great verse. But God. I heard about an organization this week that is named, But God. And I said, well, is this organization named after Ephesians 2.4? And they said, yes, it's named after Ephesians 2.4. But God. But God, in his great mercy, loving us with this amazing love, even when we were dead in our sins, has made us alive together with Christ. It is the story of us. We who know Jesus, part of the church in Ephesus, part of the church in New Orleans, we have this story of our failure, our fall. We have this story of spiritual death, and then we have this story of God's intervention often coming as a total surprise to us from a direction we never anticipated, from some source we never would have dreamed. Suddenly God is at work in our life. But God, with this great love with which he loved us in his wonderful mercy, comes to rescue us. It's called grace. And there's nothing in the dead sinner that deserves this grace or calls for this grace or elicits this grace. It is a pure act of unearned favor but a, by a loving God who looks down and cares for us even in our miserable condition, even in our condition of rebellion against him, going our way, doing our thing, and in the process, self-destructing, and he loves us still. But God. Moved in grace to rescue us. Not everybody wants grace. That's been true for the whole span of human history. Because part of our spiritual death, part of our moral brokenness, is that we really want to be God, knowing good and evil. And when Satan whispered in the ear of Adam and Eve and in your ear, he was drawing on something that was buried in that fallen nature of yours. You want to be in charge. You want to do your thing. You want to make your decision. You want to live life like you want to live it. And the notion that you must be saved through the grace of God, that there's not a thing you can do, that it's Strictly by the grace of God, that may feel off-putting to you. And there are people who say it just can't be. Because they want to save themselves. They want the satisfaction of being able to do enough good work 
so that it counterbalances the bad things that they have done. So that when they get to heaven, even though they've done these bad things, God looks at all the good works that they did and says, wow, your good works outweigh your bad, so you've been good enough. You get in. And there's something in us that wants to earn it, that wants to do it, that wants to prove ourselves worthy. It's a it's a bent towards self-righteousness. Even when God says, I want to extend you grace and forgiveness. We want to say, hey, but hey, but look at me. Yeah, I've done some things that are wrong. I know I got some things that are wrong. We all tend to minimize the wrongs that we do, okay? But look at over here now. And so even the good things we do are done out of this motivation to be God ourselves. To be in control ourselves, to really have it our way. And so that's why Isaiah the prophet says, your, even your good works are like the rags that they wrapped the leper's wounds with, soaked in filth, motivated by a heart that wants to exalt itself. The but God of Ephesians chapter 2 is a declaration that I am powerless, I am impotent, I cannot do this, I am dead and transgressions and sins, and the only way that I will ever stand in a right relationship with God or be alive again is for grace to raise me. Grace has to raise me or I am lost. And so we come to God in the story of us, finally broken down enough by our error and sin and weighted down enough by the sorrow of it all that we're willing to call out to God for his mercy and depend on his grace. And as we repent of our sin and willingly open our hearts to the thing that only God can do, which is forgive and restore us, Grace pours into our life then. And we are rescued, transformed, and made new creations. Grace raises us up like it raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, that's the picture of it. God sent his son Jesus who died on the cross for our sin in our place. He raised him up from the dead by this incredible power, this resurrection power. It is the center of the gospel. It's the center of this church. It's the center of our lives in the story of us. This miracle of God's grace raising his son Jesus from the dead. And then he says, not only Jesus, but you too. You too. I'll raise you up. I'll raise you up never to die again. You too, raised with Christ and seated in heavenly places with him. Now, God says there's a purpose and plan in his grace, in his rescue of you. Grace puts us on display. Now, that might seem to be something attractive to a self-centered soul 
that's interested in self-promotion and doing it on your own. You might wave your hand and say, okay, I'd like to be on display. I think I'd make a pretty good example of right living and righteousness. But no, that's not what he's getting at here. What the apostle Paul says is that God so loved us with this amazing love, exercising his mercy toward us, that even though we were sinners, dead in our transgressions and sins and unable in any way to save ourselves, he rescued us. He lifted us up out of that pit. He raised us up with Christ so that, in order that, in the ages to come, what ages are those? Those are the ages you're going to live through. That's the story of us. Dead in sin, but raised through grace. And now, not only in this life, but in the eons and ages to come. In order that in the ages for all eternity, in this life with God, our eternal life is totally about being in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In the ages to come, God's purpose was he might show his grace in his kindness toward us. Amen. <laughs> this is it. Grace puts us on display. We are trophies of God's love. God is the Lord of this universe and made everything. He is perfect in every way. He is perfection in every virtue. And our greatest need is to know him better. And the Apostle Paul says in the sermon from last week, I pray that your eyes and your heart may be enlightened so that you may know him better. I want you to know God better. Why? Because that is the center of being who you want to be and understanding the world as it is. Not only for us, but for every living, living creature God ever made. Angels and all of them. The living creatures that are in Revelation. Everything. Everybody needs to know God better. Now there's going to be an emblem of the love of God, an astonishing display of his kindness and mercy in heaven forever, in the ages to come, in the story of us, broken down beyond repair, unable to save ourselves. God reaches down in his love, rescues us, and makes us part of his forever family so that his kindness and love might be known not only in us, but in all creation. Grace puts us on display, but it doesn't bring any glory to us. When we are seen in heaven, they will not say, that David Crosby, he's amazing. They'll say, look at there. There's David Crosby in heaven, mind you. What an amazing God. What an amazing God that old dead in sin sinner David Crosby can end up in heaven forever. That's God. That's mercy. That's love. That's the heart of the universe. 
That's the God who made you. That's the God who pursues you every step that you take, every day of your life, who knows when your heart beats and every breath you take. And he loves you passionately beyond your imagination or capacity to understand. And his kindness is extended towards you. It's his grace that raises us and puts us on display and puts us to work in his world. Grace puts us to work. It is by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not even the grace, the faith that I get is mine. It too is God's gift. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 8 through 10. All right? So it's all about God. Your salvation's all about God. Not by works. It's by grace you are saved, not by works. How much clearer can it be? What else can, can the Holy Spirit inspire the apostle to say? There ought to be absolute clarity here. You are saved by grace, not by works. You cannot boast about being a Christian, about being in the family of God. Because it wasn't you that did it. It was all about God. Not by works lest anyone should boast. Why? For we are his workmanship, his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God previously ordained that we should walk in them. We serve a great God. And we know when the Apostle Paul teaches that we are saved by grace, somebody is going to object. And somebody's going to say, that teaching of salvation by grace is going to engender sin. People are going to live poorly. They're going to take advantage of grace. They're going to, they're going to live outside of the will of God because they think that they're saved by grace and grace alone and their works don't count. And so grace is going to make people live worse than ever before. And those people assume, I guess, that guilt will clean up your life faster than grace. That if you feel guilty enough, you'll work harder. And you'll be a better person if you live in guilt instead of grace. Maybe those folks are assuming that if you believe that your eternal salvation or damnation de depend on your performance, then you're really going to do well in this life. If it's all about you, then you're going to do really well. Instead of it being all about God, if it's really about you, then you'll do really well. What, what Paul is saying is no. No. When you get grace, when you understand it's free, when you understand it's the love and mercy of God poured out in your life, when you, it finally dawns on you what God has done in saving you and making you part of his eternal family, when that finally grips your heart, when grace gets you, it changes who you are. How can you live like you used to live when this grace has gripped you? And so the scripture teaches that it is grace which motivates us toward the life God has for us. Not because we think we're earning our way, 
but it's because of all that God has done for us in Christ. Faced with the great price that God paid by sending His Son and saving me out of pure grace, how could I live any other way than in His service? I wish I could tell you that these good works are ordained for you, that God appointed for you. These good works God has appointed for you now that you have received His grace and been transformed. I wish I could tell you that they're not going to cost you anything. You don't have to change any plans to do your good works that God has ordained for you. That it's not going to cost you any energy or any changes to your life. You're not going to be inconvenienced by these good works God has planned for you. But the truth of the matter is, these good works are just like other kind of works. They take energy. They take focus. They take discipline. They take you getting into gear and saying, I understand that God has called me. And so, Lord, I'm looking for what you want me to do now. And I'm going to pursue that life rather than the life I might have imagined for myself one day. Rather than the things I had on my agenda now. You're in charge, Lord. Just like you're in charge in my salvation, you're in charge in my daily living. So, God, what do you want me to do? When I was a preacher boy, I preached this kind of message, and one of the staff members came to me, and he said, you know, David, I'm not sure everybody in the church wants to be a servant, and I think you might be running some people off by talking about working for the Lord and being a servant. He said, it, it could be counterproductive. That's what he thought. <laughs> I can't help it, all right? The scripture says that God has saved you by his grace and that you are his workmanship and that he has ordained some things that you need to do and they are good works that God has purposed for you in your life and grace puts you to work and I can't help that. But I can tell you this, what verses 9 and 10 are telling you is the highest level of living you will ever have on this planet. If you can find what God has ordained in his grace for you to do and do it with all your might, every day that you live, every breath that you take, every heartbeat, every moment, then you will live on the highest plane that a human can aspire to. And you will live in this realm of God's grace where he gives his peace, his love, and his joy, his power in every circumstance, and even the suffering, the cost, the pain that comes your way will be evidence of God's presence in your life. You will reinterpret all of life's experience based on this amazing grace that saves you. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, full of grace and truth, we love you. We confess our love for you. You have startled us by caring about us and focusing your attention upon us and especially sending your son Jesus to rescue us when we could not do it ourselves. 
Lord, I pray for that person who is still alienated from you, still trying to make it with good works, with religion, trying to make themselves acceptable to you. God, I pray your Holy Spirit will help them understand there's nothing they can do. They're dead. Lord, help them know there's one way, and it's your grace. Holy Spirit, will you make it clear to every person in the room, every boy and girl, every young person, every adult, that it's not by works of righteousness, which we do, but according to his grace that he saves us. And Lord, we come to you as people who are in the middle of our story. And we pray, God, that you will use us, that we will indeed be your workmanship, your handiwork for our family and our spouses and our children and grandchildren, our friends, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in the church. God, that we might be your handiwork, that you might work on us and that you might work through us. Lord, show us the appointment, the ordained tasks that are ours to do, the good works you have for us, the plan for the story of us. And God, give us strength to pursue it. In Jesus' name we pray.